there is an opportunity at sea for people of color, which is greater than opportunities available on land, partly because there are no discriminations or kind of distinctions in pay. It's based on experience, not on what you look like. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name's Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor. And today I'm speaking to Nicholas Guyatt, the author of The Hated Cage, an American tragedy in Britain's most terrifying prison. And that was him at the top there talking about the experience and opportunity provided to African-American sailors in the early 19th century as an opportunity for them that they wouldn't get on land. And then we'll hear a little bit more about that in the pod. Also, this is set around the War of 1812. Now, for those listeners in America, it's probably a uh, a significant event, certainly during the uh, early years of the United States, culminating in a glorious victory at New Orleans. And for the British, it's actually kind of a forgotten war in that plenty of um, military resources were dedicated to it but at the same time Britain was dealing with Napoleon on the continent and so that's the uh, those wars are what really got the attention of the public not only in the during the period but also today and it ended in a draw a probably a score draw with British and American victories in battle throughout the war. If you're an American listener, you by all means get in touch with me. But I think it was a draw. But in the American consciousness, it was also a victory for two reasons. One, you have the creation of the American National Anthem. The Star Spangled Banner poem is written as a result of the Battle of Baltimore. And secondly, the creation of the iconic house of the head of state the White House, which was burnt by the British, you then have it, it whitewashed into, literally whitewashed into the building that it is today. So it's a significant event, certainly for America. And the subject of the book is is all about uh, the terrifying prison, Dartmoor. And Dartmoor suggests all sorts of mysterious and sinister uh, things. There's obviously Hound of the Baskervilles. It's a desolate, beautiful place, but not hospitable in any way. And so therefore a perfect place to plonk a prison smack bang in the middle. So Nicholas is great to chat to. He's a Cambridge Don, but he isn't the sort of Cambridge Don who wears tweed suits and has a beard. He's a very engaging and funny guy. So it's a great chat that we have. Now, elsewhere uh, at Aspects of History headquarters, uh, we've got an article on the front page. Now, in light of all of the Ukraine stuff going on, I'm reluctant to bombard people with it. But there is an interesting story from a from an American historian called Sean McMeekin, who's written a fantastic book called Stalin's War, in which he essentially argues that Stalin manipulated the Allies and he... Well, his title of his piece is Rewriting the History of the Second World War. And it's a look at how the Allies enabled Stalin to win 
his side of the war in Asia and in conquering Eastern Europe. And, and this is what we're still dealing with today. So I thought that might be relevant and interesting. And if you do like the early 18th century, elsewhere, if you are interested in the 18th century, and although we talk a little bit about the 18th century with uh, Nicholas uh, we do really, it's more around the early 19th. But if you like that kind of period, there is a, a, a very interesting interview on our website. I'll, again, I'm going to put a link for all these in the show notes with Thomas Levinson, who's a very clever historian at MIT who writes all about the South Sea bubble, the world's first stock market crash, which took place in 1721. And so I'll put a link in there as well. And so I won't bang on any more. We need to get on and chat with Nick Guyatt. And so if you want to get hold of me, I'm at OllieWCQ on the Twitter. And I'll pass you over to me and Nick. Right, so Nicholas... Guyat, have I spelled uh, have I spelled that? Have I pronounced that right? Yeah, you can call me you can call me Nick, Nicholas, whatever. Um, and the last name is Guyat, like the guy at the Porter's Lodge. Got it. Guyat, thank you for joining the Aspects of History podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. And I'm very excited to talk to you today because I've just finished your book, which I enjoyed greatly, The Hated Cage. Um, and it's because it, well, it's got so much in it. There's so much, uh, there's so many stories. There's so much history in it that there is a central theme running through it, which is race relations in the early 19th century. Um, but I wanted to ask you first, could you just introduce sort of where we are as the book starts? You know, it's the war of 1812, which probably not a lot of people are familiar with. Yeah, less so here in the UK compared to the US, right? Um, yeah. So in the UK, we tend to think that the big war in town when it comes to 1815 is obviously the Napoleonic War and actually the kind of second phase of the Napoleonic War. So, you know, you guys remember the story where effectively Napoleon's defeated in 1814, goes off to Elba in the Mediterranean, eventually escapes from Elba, Elba at the start of 1815. And then obviously you get this kind of massive crisis in Britain and then the climactic Battle of Waterloo in June of 1815. So again, I guess a lot of your listeners are probably like 1815, it's the French, they're the bad guys. Well, obviously the French are the bad guys. I mean, when are the French not the bad guys at this period of history? But the Americans have also been at war with Great Britain on and off, so hot war and cold war, kind of since before the US was invented, right? I mean, going all the way back to the 1760s before the American Revolution. So in 1812, Britain finds itself simultaneously fighting the United States and France and its allies. And these two stories, so the story of the kind of war with France and its allies, and the story of the war with the United States, they converge on this one extremely bleak, very grim spot in southwestern England, which is Dartmoor. And it's Dartmoor Prison, which is kind of the subject of my book, and the experience in particular of the Americans who got stuck there from 1813, to 1815. There were about six and a half thousand of them who wound up in the prison and they had a very grim, grim time. And the a lot of them were, well, they were all sailors. Sailors vary all sorts of different types of sailor. Privateers 
which is quite a um a com- well not that complicated but it's a bit of an unusual um distinction between that and a navy so it'd be quite interesting just to understand what a privateer was and and the, the a lot of them were in were in the prison as well because the, the the royal navy tended to sort of stop any ship on on the high seas basically viewing it as, as the high seas as belonging to them didn't they i mean absolutely yeah mm-hmm. uh, so, so, I mean, yeah it'd be interesting to know about the the privateers and the sailors what sorts of sailors were in the prison well, listen, can I make a confession, first of all, Oliver, which is that like, I have never written this kind of book before. And this kind of book about an event, so basically about a moment in history, I always write stuff that's a lot more kind of, you know, vague and airy-fairy and books about ideas. And So actually writing this book forced me to do a whole bunch of stuff I've never done before in my 20-odd years as a historian. So basically to get some of the sort of factual basis right. So actually to understand in deep detail how a particular prison gets built, how it's organized, how the folks there get kind of disciplined. But also, and I mean, this is where, where I wanted to go in terms of some of your listeners. I mean, I'm gonna confess, I was never a big military history guy, right? Like I was never someone who'd really worked on or thought about the military in a big way, but I really had to get up to speed for this book. And it fascinated me for exactly the reason in your question, which is why is it that the vast majority of sailors who are fighting for Britain are in the Royal Navy during the War of 1812 and the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, there are some British privateers, but the vast majority of sailors who are fighting France, Spain and France and then France, they are in the Royal Navy. Why is it that for the Americans, only a tiny number are in the Royal Navy? I mean, the the US Navy, rather. The US Navy has got like maybe about a dozen half-decent ships and then a bunch of gunboats. You know, the Royal Navy has got like hundreds of ships and it's got like over a hundred really, really large ships. So this gets you into the fact that all military history is basically at heart a history of states, of nations, and the decisions that states make about how they want to organize their population, how they want to kind of balance their budget, and when they have to, how they want to set off against other nations they're quarreling with. So... The fact that so many of these Americans are on privateers, so that's basically ordinary merchant vessels, which have just got a few guns that have been put on them to go off and kind of sail and try and attack British shipping. It's completely a decision of Thomas Jefferson and of James Madison. So Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, is in the White House from 1801 to 1809, and his protege and successor, James Madison, who's in the White House from 1809 all the way through until 1817. And they make the decision because they think it's going to be way too expensive for the U.S. to get a Navy. So what the U.S. should do instead is try and incentivize this kind of private force of sailors. And Jefferson is really quite down on these guys. He's like, oh, you know, sailors, they're just lowlifes. You know, these people aren't loyal to anything. They're like money. We shouldn't worry too much if we end up landing them in harm's way. So that's one of the things in the book I'm trying to kind of unravel, because, of course, a lot of these sailors, the majority of these sailors, they've got families. Many of them are deeply loyal to the United States, but they find themselves kind of having to fight Britain on these privateers because there isn't a big navy for them to go into, but they don't have the benefits that you have as a uniformed 
uh, officer as a uniformed military personnel kind of person. Like, you don't get any of that if you're a privateer. Instead, when you get captured by the British, they also think you're a lowlife <laughs> and they put you to the back of every queue for release. They sort of treat you like scum. So you basically have all these American sailors who wind up in Dartmoor prison who don't even have kind of full prisoner of war status that you get if you're in the Navy or in the Army. So these guys are really struggling from the get-go. And it sounds like quite a romantic, I don't want to linger too long on the privateer world, but it sounds like quite a romantic life. But the reality, obviously, as you say, isn't really like that. But because they were getting captured quite a lot, weren't they? I mean, throughout your book, there's countless stories of privateers trying to break through the British blockade and, and getting captured. Yeah, I mean, so if you think for a second, so, so I know what you mean about the romance. And I should say, I completely understand where you're coming from, but I'm a total coward. So like the moment we start getting into what naval warfare looks like, I'm leaving the room. Like I'm not jumping on board the privateer, right? Uh, what's really fascinating is the kind of business model though, because if you think about it, if you own a ship, so if you're the captain of a ship or the owner, or if you're a sailor on a ship, once you've begun to go to war with Britain in 1812, the Atlantic is an incredibly hostile place. Um, we can maybe get back to this later on, but you alluded a bit before to the fact that Britain had often stopped American ships and actually gone around searching for British sailors, in quotation marks, that were on those ships and impressing them into the Royal Navy. That's been going on for like decades and it carried on after the American Revolution. So, and that's one of the causes of the War of 1812. So, so it's never really been like the Atlantic, a kind of safe space for American ships and sailors. But obviously the moment the war breaks out, it's an incredibly unsafe space. So if you have a merchant vessel, and again, there are like thousands of these, right? You have two choices. One of them is you can carry on being what's called a letter of mark. So effectively, you can carry on zooming around the Atlantic world, attempting to deliver goods, and you've probably got some guns on board. And if necessary, you can fire on British ships or defend yourself from them, or you can become a privateer. And the privateers, their whole mission is to kind of zoom around the Atlantic, Caribbean, and even further afield into the Indian Ocean and go and prey on British ships. Now, generally, they're preying not on Royal Navy ships, because that's a little bit outmatched, but instead to prey on British commercial ships. So you basically only really have two choices. You can carry on trying to trade, but you may end up still getting sucked into a fight with the Royal Navy because they'll see you as hostile, or you can become effectively a kind of legalized pirate so although there is something a bit romantic about it from the kind of outside in a way i feel really bad for these guys especially the ordinary sailors because they got no choice as long as the war is going on there isn't really a safe way anymore to make a living and obviously these coastal towns in the u.s i mean trade has been massively disrupted there aren't a lot of other jobs either so i do think we need to see a lot of the people that wind up in dartmoor prison from the american side as being prisoners of circumstance rather than simply of choice or of bravery or or romance so some get into it with kind of romantic ideas but those romantic ideas don't last very long yeah absolutely and and a significant um percentage of the inmates of of the prison of dartmoor prison are uh, african-american and was now one person who does make an appear a very brief appearance you mentioned uh, you quote is uh Oluda um Equiano. Equiano, yeah mm -hmm. yeah he's a fascinating character but um mm -hmm. he describes the sea as a opportunity for for black people and so is that does that mean therefore that um the inmates of Dartmoor prison would be sort of you'd get a lot more uh African Americans and other black people in the prison simply by virtue of them being sailors you've got a higher percentage of, of black people on out and sea um than you would in other works of life well you know 
Uh, yeah, 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 no, absolutely. Maybe the easiest way for me to talk about this is to kind of move outward from the sources. So remember I told you that like doing this book, I had to learn stuff I wouldn't usually learn or didn't know about before mm. I got into it. So, so one of the things I had to learn how to do was to be a real kind of like historian of details and data. There is an amazing source at the heart of my book and for anyone who wants to get interested in Dartmoor Prison, which is the prison register. And the prison register is relevant to this question about black sailors because the register is one of the most detailed kind of um, documents for trying to capture information about people that you'll find like anywhere in this period of history. It's, it's a giant of, spreadsheet, isn't it? It's a huge spreadsheet, except you can't search it like a spreadsheet. I mean, unless you do what I did, which is geekily transcribe all six and a half thousand entries. Like if you do that, Lots of opportunities open up, but you know, I was, I was reading it thinking you must have done this. I mean, it was nuts. It was completely, insane. but you know what? It, it, it lets you, it unlocks so many things, particularly since it's actually really hard to see inside the prison. Once you've got the register transcribed, you can actually try and figure out whether when people write about the prison 30 years later, they're telling the truth or not. Anyway, to go back to this question of race, one of the fields, one of the kind of boxes that gets filled out, and, and this is filled out by the our clerks at the prison as soon as people walk in. So when sailors get kind of booked into the prison, there's this gigantic register, which is about as big as a small man. I mean, it's enormous. And it's got all of these fields. And there'll be a prison clerk will basically be writing down the information when the prisoners come in. One of the fields says complexion. And again, we haven't got enough time to go into all the details of it. It's kind of more complicated than race, but it's basically the field that will let us figure out roughly how many people of color were in the prison. And so on the basis of that, I can tell you that about a thousand of the six and a half thousand prisoners that were there were black or prisoners of color. So sometimes what gets written in will be a prisoner of color. And that might be someone who is black. It could be someone who is Native American. It might be someone who's black and Native American, like the famous sailor Paul Cuffey. There are lots of kind of permutations. It could be a Chinese guy. There's famously one Chinese person that winds up in the prison. So you've basically got this population which is racially very mixed. And again, to go back to what you said earlier, you're absolutely right that as Alado Aquiano figured out during his time serving in the Royal Navy and in the Merchant Navy, that there is an opportunity at sea for people of color, which is greater than opportunities available on land, partly because there are no discriminations or kind of distinctions in pay. It's based on experience, not what you look like. And although there's a glass ceiling, so it's extremely hard to become an officer if you're a person of color, it's not actually hard to get paid roughly the same as the person who's got quite a lot of experience, but who isn't an officer. So it does become a kind of space that black people are better represented in than almost any other profession, uh, either in Britain or in the United States. So again, you sort of get this weird sense that that world that's very much about the sea runs aground when these folks get captured and brought to Dartmoor with these very interesting consequences. And so Dartmoor prison itself is a, it, it's a newly built prison um, by a chap who's made friends in the right places. So got a contract. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, cause it still stands today, the prison in the I same similar shape as well. There is no part of the story which is not bonkers, genuinely. The story of like how Dartmoor Prison gets built is bonkers. So again, most of your listeners probably are thinking like Hand of the Baskervilles or maybe like hardened criminals, like murderers and stuff dumped in this prison, you know, in the middle of nowhere on Dartmoor. 
maybe some people might know a little bit about its history in terms of Irish Republican prisoners and conscientious objectors. So it was also a place that Britain put a lot of political prisoners in the later 19th and 20th century. But what we know today as Dartmoor Prison has only really existed since 1853 in its current form. So in other words, you know, like a prison with cells that's basically about criminals and convicts. In fact, when it was built, so this is now going all the way back to, it began being built in 1806, uh, and it opened in 1809. It was actually built as a war prison. And the purpose was to try to gather together all of these prisoners who were filling up the prison hulks, those old decommissioned Royal Navy vessels in various ports around Britain, to try and get them off the hulks and bring them into a land prison. But then, Oliver, you'll be like, well, why did they build their temporary war prison out of granite? <laughs> it seems like a strange choice. <laughs> and there are actually a number of reasons for that, too. But you're absolutely right that one of the things that's driving all of this is the vision is coming from a guy called Thomas Tewitt, uh, who was the son of a clergyman, uh, ended up going to Eton, then went to Oxford. And at Oxford, at Christchurch, he was introduced to the future George IV, uh, so Prince of Wales, is most of what he, during the time that Turwitt knew him, he was mostly Prince of Wales. Uh, and they became kind of friends. And, and in fact, Turwitt then ended up serving the Prince of Wales. So Turwitt had lots of interests uh, in the West Country. Uh, and of course, the um, Prince of Wales controls the Duchy of Cornwall. So one of the things that uh, happens fairly early on in their relationship in the 1790s is the um, Prince of Wales gives Turwitt a massive amount of land, uh, basically on Dartmoor, uh, and Turwitt thinks, hmm, what could help me develop this land? How about prison? <laughs> so uh, the heart of Dartmoor being built is not just the military need, like a place to try and put prisoners of war, but also these bizarre visions of this son of a clergyman, now kind of royal courtier and servant, Thomas Turwitt, that actually prisons might be an engine for redeveloping an entire region. And here you get into the thinking of people like Jeremy Bentham, John Howard, and other kind of um, uh, theorists of prisons as places you could actually reform people rather than just places you sort of put people and throw them away or, or holding facilities before you sent people to Australia. So there's this kind of fascinating story of how like the origins of what we now think of as the criminal prison are kind of getting mixed together with this problem of what you do with prisoners of war and the Prince of Wales is involved and this very eccentric guy Thomas Turwitt is involved. And when you mix all those things together, you can just about figure out why Dartmoor got built. It's still a stretch, but you can just about figure it out. And of course, it's still with us. This is the funny thing. It's still open. It was supposed to close like next year, I think, and it just announced a couple of months ago it's going to stay open. It's like the weirdest, most kind of contradictory, nonsensical facility in the British prison system. And it's the oldest and it's not about to close. You don't have any plans to visit or have you visited I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, there's a wonderful guy down there called Paul Finnegan, uh, who is the, um, uh, the manager of the Dartmoor Prison Museum. Uh, and I've only been down there a couple of times and the museum wasn't open when I went, but we've been in touch for the past year or so. And he's very keen uh, to try and obviously bring some of these stories to the museum. So he's put me in touch with the prison governor. So now I'm engaged in this quite courtly correspondence with the governor of a prison. Again, I told you I've not written this kind of book before. That's not my usual MO. 
No, but it's, it's fascinating. It really is so fascinating. Um, mm. I love that the the museum has a prison. I wonder if all um, all, all prisons have a museum. Rather. Well, so yeah, the funny part is then, so the, in terms of the kind of archaeology of it, I mentioned that Dartmoor became its current kind of criminal prison in 1853. One of the really crazy things here is that after the last French prisoners get released at the very beginning of 1816, there are lots of plans and suggestions for what could be done with Dartmoor, but it basically becomes a kind of ruin, partly because the cost of converting it to become a criminal prison. So rather than for the sailors, they basically have these big prison blocks, which don't have cells. They've got these big poles running down them, uh, but they're basically big barns. That's the easiest way to think about them. First of all, there are five of these blocks and in the end there are seven. And what the sailors are supposed to do is they get issued with a hammock because they're used to when they arrive, if they haven't brought one with them. And then they're supposed to sling the hammocks up at night sleep in these incredibly dense kind of tightly packed blocks. And then the hammocks come down in the day and they just kind of wander around being depressed. Now, obviously when the war ends, the war with France now at the start of 1816, one of the suggestions is that this should become like a home for orphans. <laughs> Another suggestion is that this might be a place where poor people are moved out of London to engage in a little bit of supervised industry. You know, the way that poor people, they just need the opportunity to go to a giant barn on Dartmoor and then they can realize all their dreams. Uh, another suggestion is it become a convict prison. But again, the money is too, too, too huge. So actually from 1816 all the way until the beginning of the 1850s, it just becomes a ruin. And the more kind of reclaims the prison and the thing that changes it, the thing that gives us today's modern Dartmoor prison, and I use modern in a, you know, in a very advised way, um, it's Australia. The Australians are sick of us sending them our convicts <laughs> and they tell us to stop. So because we can't send any more convicts to Australia, we're like, oh, we're going to need more prisons here in Britain. And then it's like, well, we have this prison, which is this kind of gothic nightmare, <laughs> which has been disused for like now 35 years. But why don't we pay an absolute ton of money to get that converted to a criminal prison? And hence, you know, voila, modern Dartmoor is born in 1853. And again, British people almost completely forget or erase the first history of Dartmoor from their minds. So nobody knows anything about it as a prison of war. It's a convict's prison, right? But in fact, had it not been for Australia, it wouldn't have been anything. We would have carried on sending people to Australia. Well, we can debate the merits of that, Oliver, if you like, sending people to Australia. But... No, well, that's for another podcast, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it's fine. Body, I think it's all. fine. <laughs> <laughs> that is a joke for those listeners who think of I course. Yeah, we love Australia. <laughs> Um, so the first inmates are, are French. Uh, now they divide themselves, it seems, into sort of a class structure, don't they? Um, yeah, I mean, so, so yeah, we're reliant on one prisoner in particular, a guy called Louis Cattell, who wrote about his experiences many years later, who described all of these different kind of groups within the French prison. I think there was a little bit of uh, artistic license, should we say, in the way he described the communities. But these are basically communities of uh, like relative levels of despair and of like wealth. Because the other thing we should say pretty early here is that for the prisoners, many of them had ways of getting money in the prison. Some brought money with them. So they were effectively captured and got to keep their cash. Others had money sent to them and others found themselves making money from their activities within the prison. So this French guy who wrote about Dartmoor many years later, Louis Cattell, described all of these different groups of French people. So they were like the gamblers. There were these guys called the Kaiserlicks who were basically big, big, big fans of Napoleon. Uh, but most famously, there was a group called the Romans. 
And these guys were called the Romans because they hung out at the very top of one of the prison blocks in an area that was known as the Capitol. So that's where they got the name, C-A-P-I-T-O-L, Capital of the Building. So this idea of the Roman Capitol kind of stuck to them. Um, they were by far the most desperate Frenchmen in the prison. Many of these were men who had been in British custody for, in 1809, five or six years. By the time the Americans arrived in 1813, some of them had been in custody for nearly a decade, extremely desperate, um, addicted to alcohol, addicted to gambling. Uh, and eventually they just made this decision collectively that they would kind of throw off their clothes and they would wander around at the top of the prison uh, during the time they were in the prison completely naked. And they'd have a kind of communal repository of, of, of blankets, which they had cut a hole in the top of. And when they needed to leave the prison block, they would put one on, just take one from the pile and put it on and go and appear somewhere else in the prison. And so in some respects, they became a massive embarrassment to Britain because these prisons were supposed to be humane, right? I mean, these guys have not committed a crime. They're prisoners of war. So what do you do when you've got a bunch of naked, desperate, feral Frenchmen, that even the other French prisoners are starting to think have kind of gone beyond the pale. So it begins to create problems for the British government back in London when you start getting reports that there are these kind of naked, mad Frenchmen on the loose in the prison. And the Americans have never seen anything like it. The Americans are like, what the holy hell is this? Uh, and actually tensions between the Romans, these most depraved French prisoners and the Americans, get so bad that by the autumn of 1813, the Romans are all evacuated from Dartmoor and sent to one of the prison hulks, ironically, down in Plymouth. There seem to be... Uh, it's interesting you say that uh, Louis Cattell, the, 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 um, the, the, your main source for this, is... You think he's maybe... Because when I was uh, reading this, it sounded exactly like the Count of Monte Cristo, um, yeah. uh, the Romans. I wonder if he was reading a lot of Juma. If probably... well, I'm trying to think about the, the dates of that. Is the Count of Monte Cristo is a bit later, isn't it? Yeah, it, it probably is. I've just... Um, so I think just what was going was through my... Yeah. So maybe in, the, maybe in the 1840s, you're absolutely right, there's a real flavour of that. And I should say too that, um, I mean, this predates the novel, but the equivalent of the Romans who were held at another British prison, a prison called Norman Cross, which is close to Peterborough, they're actually known as Les Miserables, which I yes. like. Yes, I, I remember that. That's, yeah, yeah, that's great. It's mm. absolutely great. I'm, sh I'm sure you're right that there's a milieu here <laughs> in terms of looking back in the 1840s and 1850s on this earlier period. And again, for a historian, one of the challenges of doing this is that in some ways, you're almost as far from like 1809, 1810 in 1850 as you are today. And in some ways, it's worse, right? Because you tend to trust the source, especially the source that says they were in prison. And there are all kinds of things that can shape, distort, um, influence someone who's looking back even on their own experience. So I do think you have to be quite cautious about trusting any source completely. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's one thing that comes across in the book throughout is the contemporaneous sources give a completely different view of the prison compared to those retrospective sources. Uh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. That's the end of part one. Coming up in part two, Nick goes on to talk about life in the prison and the massacre itself. So I hope you can join us then. I'll put all the links in the show notes. And if you've got any questions, you can get hold of me on the Twitter at OllieWCQ. And with that, I will leave you. Thank you and good night.